That's right, dear listeners, there is a poop storm a-coming. The following episode of Comfortable Place on the Couch contains salty language. Welcome to Comfortable Place on the Couch Series 2, a regularly scheduled podcast where two Canadians and a sometimes elegant Englishman talk about a band full of Australians and a New Zealander bassist to Midnight Oil fans all around this earth and sun and moon. If there was ever an appropriate time for that joke, it's today. (laughs) My name is Darren Folds, and in the coming months, I'll be listening to those Midnight Oil songs that didn't make it onto the their studio albums. We're talking about B-sides, covers, demos, and maybe a few other tracks, if the fancy strikes me. Joining me each episode is some guy named Robin Harbin, but more importantly, a producer named Nick Lane that you might know <laughs> hello, from hello, his hello. work with Midnight Oil. <laughs> Good afternoon, Robin. Good afternoon, Nate. Robin, you still are my best friend. Well, thank, thanks, Darren. <laughs> but it's nice to have you back, Nick. Good afternoon up there. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be, to be back. And um, I have to uh, just say a quick thank you to all the uh, people out there, all the fans, Midnight Oil fans, and uh, I guess now my new fans uh, who have, yeah. have been writing to me uh, on my Facebook fan page. Uh, and other places, oh. actually, it's cropped up everywhere. So uh, it seems like a lot of people are listening out there, which is nice to know. And um, and, and uh, thanks, thanks for all the love. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Um, I've got a few things in the old mailbag. This is this is something that's a new thing on the show. It's the mailbag. <laughs> I'm going to read a few emails that we've got uh, over the past week, and uh, just to to share some of that love, Nick. Uh, this is from listener Grant. He says. I've really been enjoying the chats with your new couchy, Mr. Nick Lane. His love and passion for music, Midnight Oil, and for life really shines through these conversations. Great. Yeah, Grant has some questions about the new bass player that I'm sure Robin wants to yeah, ask you about later sure. on. And the sound of, of the album that we're talking today, Earth and Sun and Moon, so we'll talk about those later. Um, Aaron writes, he says, love what you're doing. I was more than a little disappointed, though, that the shipyards was not discussed too much except for the outtake at the end. Um, Aaron has some questions about um, Earth and Sun and Moon that are on our list as well. So we'll Great. hit those later. But but he ends with the recordings for Earth and Sun and Moon. The guitar parts were just so well done, Nick. He says they sound still so fresh and new even today. Well, there you go. Well, it was a very fresh uh, approach to um, to making records, actually. Well, I say fresh as in that we deliberately went back in time with technology mm. because by that point, um, you know, a lot of modern things had happened and, sure. you know, uh, digital had started and all that. But we, we, we still stuck to uh, doing things analogly. And it's yeah. a very analog, <laughs> yes. it's a very analog record. Yeah. And um, yeah. It, the, the, that was the main thing that the, that the band requested of me okay. it was that yeah. uh, let's let's make it very very earthy and organic yeah. and they didn't have the name of the album it wasn't you know at that point oh, no. I didn't know it was called Earth yeah. and Sun and Moon but I think that we did a lot of listening to 
records that were made in the late 60s and early 70s and the warmth mm. of sound. And uh, mm -hmm. that was a big thing that they wanted to do. And, and I was like, yeah, absolutely, let's let's do it. So so actually the recording of this record is is more, perhaps more like um, 1098 in, 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 the, in the technical way. In fact, it was mm. done on a slightly more vintage style of desk. Um, oh, yeah. So that's that's why it sounds wow. so warm. Cool. Well, maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit, if that's Great. all right. Because there's one more email that I'd like to read, if that's all right. Yes. Graham says, another ripping installment with Nick Launay. I could listen for hours on end and still feel inherently disappointed when the hour <laughs> does come to an end. We'll just have to talk much faster. <laughs> yeah. well, I know. Well, And the thing is, Graham has tons of questions about red sails. But right. today we're doing Earth and Sun and Moon. So I'm going to throw this out to you, Nick, and do and it. Whatever happens, happens. But maybe we could engage you for another session later on um, on the couch to maybe answer some questions from the podcast listeners at some point. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Let's fun. do that. Okay, that might be fun. Yeah. Anyway, Graham continues. Um, he has significant interest, Graham says, on any discussion about bushfire, which for me is the most criminally underrated Midnight Oil song perhaps of all time. And I personally, Darren, this is Darren speaking, I think that bushfire is still one of my, my favorite Earth, Sun, and Moon tunes as well. So let's remember to talk about yeah, well, bushfire today. Great. So in case you're just parachuting into the middle of this podcast without any knowledge of what we've been doing lately, we have Mr. Nick Launay, uh, producer of not only Earth and Sun and Moon, but Midnight Oil's 1098 album, Red Sails in the Sunset album. I think that you did work on The Dead Heart as well. And yep. he's been talking to us the last couple of weeks. And, and today we're talking with him about his time with the band doing Earth and Sun and Moon. Nick, last time I asked you about how you became producer on Red Sails right after 1098. And you told us that, you know, during the making of a record, you're not thinking necessarily about what's coming next. You're focused on what's going on at the time. Um, but for Earth and Sun and Moon, you've been away, you had been away from producing Minot Oil for the better part of a decade. Do you remember the situation around how you were asked to come back and, and produce uh, Earth and Sun and Moon? I think, yeah, I think it had a, a big part of it is that, um, that I'd moved back to Sydney. Well, I say moved back to Sydney. Uh, if you remember, 1098 was recorded in London. The band came to London and, and obviously that's where I met them. The, band, the album then became really successful. We went on to mm -hmm. do Red Sails in Tokyo. But uh, by that point, I'd already visited Australia many times and actually did a couple of records with Australian bands, probably more notably the In Excess, the Swing album was partly done in Sydney. Okay. And also the Models, great, great band from Melbourne called The Models. I did a, 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 a fantastic album, one of my favourite records uh, that I've been involved in called uh, The Pleasure of Your Company in Melbourne. So, uh, and I loved Australia. So uh, by the um, very end of the 80s, uh, me and my then family had two kids by this point. We we decided mm. to sell our house in London and and move to, move to Sydney and actually bought a house literally streets away 
from where Rob Hurst and family lived, and also Peter Garrett, which is a, an area of Sydney called Balgala Heights, uh, which is okay. near Manly. Uh, if you're familiar with Sydney at all, there's there's two very big famous beaches. There's Bondi Beach and there's Manly Beach, and uh, they're quite far apart. Uh, different, very different parts of the city. Uh, the Manly area has bigger and cheaper houses at the time. They were certainly much cheaper and much bigger, and it's a really good place for kids to grow up. So moved there, mm. bought a house uh, in that area specifically because we knew people there, uh, Rob and Leslie and, and, and Peter and Doris, uh, his wife and, and their kids. So uh, in a way, it was perhaps because I was there in Sydney and um, uh, perhaps rekindled close friendships because obviously living on the opposite side of the planet, you, you don't see a lot of each other. Suddenly we were bumping into sure. each other <laughs> at the local deli uh, and yeah. things like that. So I dare say that had perhaps a big part of it. Um, yeah. And mm -hmm. I think also bands yeah. tend to do this. They, you know, they, they want to try something new each time. Um, so yeah. they don't, they don't often do all their albums with one record producer. Um, sure. So I think it's quite a healthy thing to to switch and match. And obviously, my relationship and and Warren Livesey's relationship, we both are we're all friends, you know. So uh, that's how it yeah. tends to work. Right on. Well, okay, maybe building off of that, um, Warren, of course, did Diesel and Dust and Blue yep. Sky Mining, and some people consider Earth and Sun and Moon to be the third album of of what's called the Campfire Trilogy, following right. those two albums. Now, not everybody thinks that, yeah. but some people do. <laughs> um, I haven't heard I haven't heard this before. Well, okay, here we go. Some people make a lot of comparisons between the three albums. Um, however, Pete said on an interview during the recording of Earth and Sun and Moon that the band was going for something with more, um, these are Pete's words here, crunch and grunt, moving and grooving, something that didn't have that studio fairy dust sprinkled all over it. Absolutely. I, 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 would, I would agree with that. Okay, yeah. good. Now, we know your preference was for analog recording, and I think you already started to allude to this, but we also associate Nick Launay with sonic experimentation. So here's my question for you. Were you able to innovate and experiment as much on ESM as you would have liked to? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the approach was probably similar. The, the difference would have been that I had by this point made many, many, many records, whereas with sure. 1098, it was kind of the first, almost the first record I made. It wasn't exactly the first, but I, I really had probably only six months of studio experience. I mean, like literally <laughs> wow. six months and I, and I was raring to go and uh, the equipment back then, uh, we're talking 1981, 82, was limited. Uh, digital hadn't really been invented. I mean, it had, there was a few a few things that had digital displays and stuff and there was a thing called an AMS delay that had a um, you know, a, a sampling feature that was actually a, a modification and that's it. So, so by this point, by the time, um, earth and sun and moon came around, you know, digital was everywhere and most people were recording digitally. And I'd certainly made, I'm going to say a lot of, 
records that I think are really good. And I'd also made a lot of records that I actually don't think were very good because mm. they were overproduced in, in, in what I would say a bad way. I mean, to me, production and production of sound, you know, you can get a bit carried away. And I think everybody got a bit carried away in the 80s. I think the beginning of the 80s, it was great. And as the 80s went on, more equipment came in, more digital stuff that really didn't sound very good came in. Mm. And there's, there's a, I, I think the end of the 80s is probably my least favorite period of, of rock and roll. I, I certainly remember being in England before moving to Australia thinking, wow, what? what's going on there's nothing there's no real focus in music fashion and hmm. you know there certainly wasn't new wave wasn't there anymore punk certainly wasn't there we're in this strange place and it was just before grunge right yeah. that that's the period between new wave and and grunge there's about almost 6 or 7 years there where there wasn't a particular fashion so yeah i think that by the time uh, you know, we came to do Earth and Sun and Moon. All of us, you know, me and every member of the band were in this place where we're probably like a lot of people, you know, the CD was the, the main thing that people were buying and mm -hmm. a lot of remastering for CDs hadn't happened properly and things were sounding tinny and thin and the warmth of records uh, wasn't there. And then we'd put on our old vinyl cream or <laughs> early Rolling yeah, Stones sure. records and going, my God, those records sound so much better. What's going on? And it was that period of, of scratching your head going, actually, all this new technology is great on one level, but it's confusing in that we have too many options. How about we go back to basics? And that's what this, this album was. And I think the experiment, going back to your question, the experimentation mm -hmm. on this record was... Um, like we got all the basic backing tracks of the band in a very old fashioned way of, you know, everybody in the same room and just getting the best takes. And then me and Jim in particular, as, as, as our relationship had developed in the studio, would spend hours and days trying all those kind of weird sounds with delays and um, loops and stuff like that. So... I think we definitely got to experiment just as much as ever before, but perhaps it was done more on, in the overdub stage than in the initial sure. recording. I mean, we took our time. Yeah. That, that album, from memory, we didn't have a limit um, on how long it could take. I mean, not, not, not like the usual limit, uh, because the studio essentially, well, partly belonged to Midnight Oil. It was there studio they helped oh, okay. they they helped finance it which was a big big part of of doing it oh, yeah wow. i did not know that yes nick you, you talked about putting the band back together in the same room mm -hmm. and i i especially want to talk about uh the bass on this album well the bass and drums together but this is when bones joined the band yes and uh well actually he had joined for blue sky mining but Diesel and Dust, Blue Sky Mining are both fantastic albums. Uh, they, they did super well. They have lots of great songs. I'm a bass player myself, and the the bass on both those albums is is boring compared to other Oils albums. 
And I'm kind of wondering if that was a result of the the way they were tracked so precisely one by one. And by the time the bass player, both Giffo on Diesel and Dust and Blue Sky Mining, uh, they they were very constrained because all the tracks had been laid down. It's like play bass at the end of the process. Right. While with Earth, Sun, and Moon, Bones was right there in the room and influencing the groove right from the beginning. Sorry, that was a long question. But <laughs> no, oh, I know, I yeah. know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you, so, do you, was that going on? And well, what do you I think, think I think there's a, there's there's a few elements that would explain the 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 different bass playing. I, I, I'm obviously I wasn't in the studio when Diesel and Dust and Blue Sky Mining were made, so I don't know if the tracking. Uh, the basic tracking of, of 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 like what I call the main backing tracks was done with everybody in the room or not. I, I know they did it in a very very small studio called Alberts, where it might have actually mm. been harder to do that. And I don't know if if Warren Livesey's way of recording is basically get the drums first and then do it all overdubs. I'm not. I, I'm not. I, I'm actually not clear about that I, i've always recorded the whole band together and it, it's mm-hmm. it's for keeps so to speak and that's how that's how i am with every band i've ever worked with um yeah. so so there really is no difference between even though the bass player changed um yeah. you know from giffo to bones two great nicknames by the way yes fantastic <laughs> <laughs> only bass players yeah. can have nicknames um but but yeah, so the 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 I didn't approach the basic backing tracks any different with Giffo than I did with Bones. I do think that Giffo was a more eccentric musician, not not an eccentric person, although there's a very interesting story behind what he did after he left midnight oil which i don't know if fans right. know we've 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 heard about the the, the bikinis yeah micro <laughs> micro incredible. bikinis it's quite incredible <laughs> I, I mean the amusing part of it is that you know imagine he's done diesel and dust he's in you know he's he did all the recording and quits the band at the finish of that record i believe before yeah. they went and toured which in it's their biggest record, so presumably much nicer hotels, much nicer traveling, you know, better probably business class flights perhaps, and the, you know the band have by this point generated money. They're a big band, and and become bigger and bigger because of Diesel. So he chooses to quit just when things got easier, and everybody's scratching their head, going, "Are you crazy?" And he's going, "Nah, mate, I've got a better idea." And you go, well, what is this better idea? And he said, you know, and it turns out that his girlfriend, you know, liked going to the beach and she liked to wear small bikinis. So he made her one. As I explained before, very, the man has incredible dexterity. And not only can he play really kick ass bass, he can also sew. He designs this bikini for her. Her girlfriend's want one he makes two three four five more decides to open a little shop selling these bikinis and i mean it becomes the biggest online seller of swimwear on planet earth you know 
he, what he said was right. He had a better idea, not necessarily a better idea <laughs> musically, but a better idea of how to make money, which which turned out to be this thing that seemed to have absolutely no, like you could never have predicted this stuff. You know, yeah. it's extraordinary. Anyway, that's that little story. Um, yes. <laughs> going back to mu- music, um, but, but Giffo, <laughs> as explained on the last album, uh, Red Sails, you know, his 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 bass playing and experimenting with bass playing was extraordinary, uh, to say the least. I mean, especially with the stick. Um, then cut to, as you said, years and years later, Bones is much more of a uh, a rock bass player, actually. His tendency is to play eights, you know, like dum, 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 really well. That sort of bass part, you can do it. it. It's it's not hard to do, but it's really hard to do well. And he mm-hmm. does it like nobody else. And that's his thing. You know, every musician has their thing. And, you know, there's still the choice of notes and the way you do it. And I think because of the success of the previous two records and the simplicity of the bass, it allowed more room for the guitars to, to, to do things. And so it just continued. And I, But the, here's the, the key thing about Bones is his singing. That guy has right. a beautiful voice. He does great harmonies. And people go, oh, well, Bones is the bass player. Well, he he's a lot more than that. He is an extraordinary singer. Um, and he's got mm-hmm. a very particular voice that blends very well in with Peters and, and Rob's who are doing the most main harmony. I mean, Jim, Jim sings as well. Um, you know, it's, it's all part of it, but I think that Bones is uh, vocal talent is, is extraordinary. I mean, he's a, he's like a first take kind of guy comes up with multiple harmonies and you pick the harmony and you go with it. And um, he's got a character of voice. So, the other the other element to your question about bass grooves and playing is I personally am really into dance music. And I don't mean the sort of type. Right, right, I'm not yeah. a big fan of that kind of music. But I really love rock bands that make great dance music. Uh, you oh, know, dance, sure. and, and Rolling Stones would be very high up there you know they're a rock band but because of charlie watts their songs groove so well and so i definitely always push the bass player to do more groove orientated bass parts rather than it just being a rock thing to cover the low end of the song Mm. so perhaps the reason that um, Earth and Sun and Moon grooves is because I really wanted it to groove and the band really wanted it to have that that element of, of 60s, you know, sort of 60s, early 70s mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a lot of records back then were pretty, I suppose the word back then would have been hip. They make your hip, hips move. And so... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a, a lot of the songs on this record were were written with that in mind. I mean, uh, Feeding Frenzy and starting the so- starting the album yeah. with Feeding was deliberate to set the tone for the album. You know, it's it's a basically yeah. it's it's like Peter Gunn. It's it's a you know it's it's a great great That's great right. song. It's a great track. Robin always likens um, that baseline and a couple others to Peter Gunn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely got totally. the Peter Gunn thing. Yeah, totally. 
Robin and I both wrote down two questions for you that consist of one word each. So I'll give you these two words, and then you can just tell us what you want to tell us about these two things. Okay. My word was harmonica, and Robin's word was organ. <laughs> okay. Because they're so exciting. Like, they yeah. make this this album so exciting. Yeah, they're, they're definitely a big, big part of this record. and um, Especially the organ. Was that something there in the studio? Was that... It has a lot to do with, yes, the, the organ was there, and many keyboards, many, many keyboards were at the studio. I mean, Jim collects keyboards, is a great keyboard player. And this was the first album that I did with them in Sydney, where he had all his keyboards. You know, you got to remember right, that right. Um, when we went in London, all they had was their guitars and, and a couple of amps, and, and likewise in Tokyo. Um, so suddenly here, they had the, a, a warehouse, which they still have, which has all their equipment in it. I've got to say that, you know, their warehouse um, in Sydney is huge. I mean, it has literally hundreds of guitars and amps galore oh, wow. and keyboards and everything. And um, can I just interject? Yeah. Weren't they selling off like stuff from their warehouse they, a couple of years they ago? Sold, Were there auctions for something? Yeah, they, they did do an auction for a very small amount of the stuff in that. Right. Room, but there was some neat stuff in oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fans, well, everybody was able to see, yeah. I can tell you a quick story about the culling of guitars for yeah, Jim, yeah. And Jim and Martin. <laughs> this was probably just shortly after we did Earth and Sun and Moon. Both uh, their families, um, wives and kids, uh, this is Jim and Martin I'm talking about. Um, Held an intervention for them. And they said, did, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you'd literally go round to their houses and you'd open... A cupboard and a guitar would fall out, and you know oh, you wow. you know when you have those cupboards where you've got lots of stuff, you've got linen and all that, but then there's a there's a very high shelf up above where you can fit things that almost go into the attic. You'd look up and yeah. there would be like five vintage guitars up there, <laughs> and wow. you know so every cupboard you know in the kitchen you'd open the kitchen oh another guitar, and so it became this thing where the wives got together for an intervention of, okay, you're you're only allowed to have 50 guitars each. 50 <laughs> guitars each. Just and, 50. Yeah. And you have to sell the rest. And, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a big ask. I, I think the boys fought back and said, how about 100 each on realizing that they probably had more than 100 wow. each. And maybe it, the, the the compromise went down to seventy five. I mean, I'm I'm kind of making up wow. the the numbers here, but it was it was <laughs> insane how many guitars you got to realize because they they tour around America and of course go to these vintage shops and keep buying mm. guitars and selling them back. I mean, it was a major problem. You can ask either Jim or Martin about this, and they'll have a real laugh about it. It was like an addiction. I mean, Rob did the same wow. with drum kits, although he was a bit more restrained. Uh, he has a, a big collection of beautiful old Ludwig and Slingerland drum kits, and uh, he's got a lot of great vintage stuff. In fact, some of his tables in his house, he has a beautiful, him and Leslie have a beautiful house in, in Sydney, and there are some of the coffee tables are actually drums, you know, with oh, wow. with yeah. sort of, they, they, it's a great idea. They, they, they look sure. cool. What, what were we... T we 
Have, have we got off track? Have we got off track again? How did that happen? So Jim, Jim's collection, he's got guitars, but he's also that's got right. a large collection of organs. Keyboards, that's it. So so when, when we were um, doing Earth and Sun and Moon, all his keyboards from his home and warehouse all came to the studio. So there were a lot of them. And needless to say, every single one of them had to be experimented with. We had Farfisas. We had, I mean... You name it, all different roads, you know, Wurlitzers. Yeah, so that that that's a that's a big reason why there's so many of these vintage sort of sixties, seventies keyboards on the record. With going to the harmonica, mm-hmm. Pete is a great harmonica player. And um there's a couple of songs that did very well on Blue Sky Mine yeah. that are you know, that's there's a hook. And I think it was a case of just like, yeah, let's let's put more of that on this record. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I record bands, um, especially bands like Midnight Oil, who are obviously extraordinarily good live, I, I do record them as if it's a live gig. So, including having the singer in his own room, so there's separation, sing. And whether we use those vocals yeah. or not, you know, that's a decision for later. But I record it as if we're going to keep it. And I think quite a lot of vocals, some of the vocals on on this record were kept because of the the vibe of, of him. And he did have a harmonica as well. So he would do the harmonica takes. And I think some of the harmonica that you hear is from the the original backing tracks. Um, I mean, he he is a great player, and we I remember we had to you know some of the keys of the songs. Um, well, harmonica is a very difficult thing because you can either have a um, I'm going to get the words wrong because I'm not really a musician, but you can have harmonicas that have a few levers on the yes, side sure. that you can switch chromatic, chromatic so you can yeah. you can make them work for any song but they when you do that they still don't cover all the notes it's much better to have a, a smaller single harmonica that is in the key of the song yeah a dedicated diatonic that's harmonica. it <laughs> there you go that's the word diatonic what a great word that is i mean i yes. I, get, I get up every morning and i have my diatonic drink drink every morning so we had lots of diatonic harmonicas i remember there was like a suitcase of them and it's like is this one the right one because some of the keys are not designed for the harmonica i think if you're a harmonica player and a harmonic you know if you're like a solo artist who plays harmonica you'd probably write your songs in the key that best suits Mm -hmm. the harmonica I do remember that that wasn't necessarily the case with some of the songs, so we had to cheat a little bit by very speeding the tape. Preferably, you very speed up so that when it's played back, it's lower, so the tone of the harmonica is richer and deeper. If you go the other way, you end up with a very small uh, sounding. And the same with vocals. If you if you're playing around with very speed on a multi-track, which which I do often, if you have to pitch it down to record something it will work but when you speed it back up to normal speed the vocal will end up sounding like mickey mouse which Mm -hmm. is less desirable than the other way where (laughs) you when you slow it down and you end up sounding like uh leonard cohen for instance yeah (laughs) so uh so yeah same with a harmonica so there's there are all kinds of fun moments on earth sun and moon even even though it's a more straightforward rock album. 
side one and side two of the album both start with some interesting sounds like the the band is kind of playing around with their instruments beforehand and especially on side one when i got the cd back in 93 feeding frenzy blew me away but when i got it on vinyl just a few years ago there's some little organ playing around at the very beginning just like maybe five seven notes we wanted this album to sound a little bit like you had visited the studio like you were in the room with them and you had that experience of it sounding very natural and all around you and the studio was actually built purposely and designed by midnight oil and and myself to a certain degree i mean i i was living in sydney and a built the building was found and uh you know i remember visiting it and going yeah this could be great we could put another room there and we need a line of vision here and they had already gone down that road of of wanting to own their own recording studio and the process of finding buildings had happened and i I was by that point in Sydney, so I went went and visited a couple of places. Uh, I mean, the one that they decided on was a studio that was, it was called Megaphone. It was already called Megaphone, I think, before they became involved. And it was more like a demo studio. And it's out near the airport uh, in Sydney in an industrial estate. And it's on the top floor of a, I'm going to say, three or four story building and it actually goes out to a rooftop. The rooftop is fantastic there, and yeah. you can see the airplanes. I mean, the airplanes really are close. I mean, they're just, you know, if an airplane was flying over, it ended up on the record. It was, it, they're really oh, yeah. like, they're, they're just about to land there. And, um, but it, yeah, it was already a demo studio, and it had a control room um, and, a, and a nice recording space. Um, but, the control room was very small. So um, I think there were joint conversations about what to do. And we en- ended up building a new control room that was much bigger, keeping the main recording room, turning the original control room into a small ISO booth, and then building another room. Uh, and making it, we actually tried to. I'm going to say we. It was really them. You know, they were they yeah. were obviously paying for it, and and it was going to be their studio. Um, but but I went down and suggested things, and because of our love for the drum sound on 1098, which was done in a yeah. a stone room, right? I, 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 if you remember the certainly, yeah, the floor was slate. Uh, and the walls were all like boulders, you know, like, um, actually, I think the rock came from California, believe it or not, it was shipped hmm. over there. So we basically built a drum room for Rob that was a similar size and shape to the stone room at Studio Two Townhouse. Um, the only difference is it had perhaps a little less stone and it had a lot of metal and corrugated oh, yeah. iron. There was one wall I remember was corrugated. You know, like when he plays live, he does those solos yeah. and he has that big... Um, water tank thing, yeah. There was a water tank in there, like in the wall. <laughs> so you could go, you know, on it. And um, right on. so it was Rob's special drum room. 
and it worked really well. And we actually recorded some of the drums in there, and we recorded some of the drums in the main bigger room, which was all wood. And, you know, it just depended on the track. Um, I think actually most of the drums on Earth and Sunroom were recorded in the wooden room because we wanted it to sound earthy. And we didn't necessarily have, if you listen to the album, there aren't that many sort of aggressive songs. It's not an aggressive album. Mm -hmm. So the idea of having an aggressive drum sound just wasn't quite the need for that. So although we had this fantastic live room, little live room, explosive sounding room. Um, we only used it on a couple of songs, um, but it, it was a great room to have, you know. That's what you want in a recording So You want different rooms with different sounds. You want a dead room, you want a live room, you want an aggressive room, you want a mellow room. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just because we're talking about drums right now, it seems to me that on Earth and Sun and Moon, in some ways, Rob is playing a little bit more, in a little bit more of a restrained way. He's not going for gigantic fills and rolls across all the toms and stuff like that. But what he is playing is really, you know how drummers always use silly words like spicy and tasty. He's, he's playing lots of little really interesting things that don't assert themselves as a gigantic drum fill, but are just really interesting to listen to. No, I, I think that's true. I think, I, I think that, again, there was an emphasis on groove. And if you're yeah. doing songs that groove, you can't put in as many drum fills and, and craziness. Mm. Uh, you know, when you're doing a fast, energetic rock song uh, and it's all about energy and excitement and fireworks, I mean, mm -hmm. drum fills are a bit like the moment where you go, look at me, look at me, look what I'm doing. And it's, yeah. you know, it's they're there for excitement mostly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, and it's to sometimes to uh, indicate that you're going from one section of a song to another, like verse to chorus. Sure. And, you, you know, invariably there's a drum fill to say, here we go again. Now here comes the catchy yeah. bit. I mean, th these are things that we think about when we're making records. It's like, yeah. you know, and it's very natural for a drummer to do that. Now, you'll notice most out-and-out out dance songs, well, mostly they're done with a drum machine, they don't necessarily have drum fills mm. in, in those places because they just want to keep the groove. They want to keep you dancing. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, uh, the, the, the making of this record was a little bit like that of like, well, we want to keep the groove there. We don't want to be distracted by some epic drum fill as much as we can't get enough of Rob's epic drum fills. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's a craving. We want more. Yeah. So I, I think I think there's still a lot of that in, on this record, and, and there's certainly mm -hmm. some incredible drumming. Oh yeah! But it was really about the groove, and and let's face it, to groove well, no matter what kind of drummer you are, you would recognize that the best grooving songs are laid back. Yeah, you know, it's in the pocket. It's as they say, and it's it's mm -hmm. like a laid back kind of you know feel. And mm -hmm. Rob is a great groove drummer. The, you know, he can do that, but he's not famous for that. He is famous mm -hmm. for the other. He is famous yeah. for the exciting fireworks, yep. Keith Moon style of drumming. That's what, sure. what he's well known for. So 
this was a little bit of a different thing for him and he was all about it. I mean, he was absolutely all about it. Yeah. And and I think also Bones plays a more simplistic bass that's probably easier to groove with. Um mm. so so that's that's why you end up with with this kind of an album which is a slightly more laid back uh groove album than than others. In uh True Ganini, yes. this might be stretching your memory, but there's some spooky sounds during the verses, like there's a road train going nowhere, right. and there's the, the the bass, you know, there's the groove, but on some of the verses, there's these spooky sounds that, uh, and I'm wondering if you remember trying to make spooky sounds, was that the inside of a piano again, or was that, was that something else? I yeah, that's I, I remember it very well because it was a lot of fun to do. Uh, both both me and Jim were huge fans of recording things and flipping the tape over backwards, right? Uh-huh. We loved that. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of that going on uh, actually on both 1098 uh, and Red Sails. For for example, on on Red Sails, there's Who Can Stand in the Way, which has slide guitar, a pedal steel. You know, you put it on your lap, and you, you know, country songs have them. Um, so Jim played that on that song, and to me, it just sounded too country and too ordinary. I'm not a huge fan of country music myself because I can't relate to it. I don't. I haven't lived in that part of America and country music for the most part to me sounds hokey. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm come more from the punk rock uh, sure. mentality sure. and it, yeah. it just isn't yeah. punk rock. However, there are a lot of artists that I really like. I mean, Patsy Cline, lo- love her, you know, there's a lot of country that I like, but as a general thing, I'm not a huge fan. So th- to me that, that sounded ordinary that's the best way i could say it sounded like oh my god you know this isn't exciting to me so i said and jim came in and heard it and he played it fantastically you know it's like he and and he said uh i he he could see that i wasn't like i was going "Mm, not sure not sure and i and i said to jim how about play it backwards and most people would have gone are you crazy? You know, it's a whole song and it's not an easy song to work out how to play. And he goes, Jim being Jim goes, oh yeah, hang on a minute. Gets out his paper. He wrote down, cause you know, Jim reads and writes music. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is not yeah. most rock musicians don't do that. So he wrote down the whole song, got another piece of paper and literally transcribed it backwards <laughs> took him all of 10 minutes goes let's give it a go i flipped the tape over literally because we were analog went to the end of the song took the two spools and the tape flipped it over so the left is on the right the right is on the left mm-hmm. found the two tracks that were free which of course the numbers are different so if it was track yeah, you know around. yep they swap around and i said all right are you ready and he goes, yep, I push record, and in comes the song, you know, and it's the drums, instead of being, 
they're like yeah. and it's all this <laughs> sound like a David Lynch song you know with Peter singing backwards yeah. you know and he did it I mean I'm not right kidding on. like his first take yeah. his first wow. take playing the whole song it's like his brain works that way where he can hear a song backwards and of course he wrote the song so it's in his mind and he's got it written out That's played incredible. it and and it's not easy it's not it's so difficult it's not only that the chords are backwards which which if you think about it if you write it out backwards then you're going to see the chart and and be able to do it but it's just such an alien sound because the guitars mm-hmm. instead of going ding 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 they're going so you don't actually <laughs> yeah. hear the chord until you're already in it because the the sustain is backwards. So instead of going, which you hear clearly, it's, you know, so the whole thing is like that. And then the vocal is confusing as all hell because it's, it's literally like, you know, that, that kind of thing. And it's like, yes, we're in a David Lynch movie. Yeah. Couldn't be happier. I mean, I love that stuff, you know, and Jim does too. We're, we're very, as I've said before, we're on a psychic connection there that we have that comes naturally so he, he did one take brilliant we did another take oh we listened back and then he did another take which was even better and i think there's his first take on the left and his second take on the right because sometimes he played different chords and they formed harmonies so if you go listen to that song because that's pedal yeah. steel played backwards So, okay, so so then cut to, I think, what are we talking about? Nine, ten years later. Yes. <laughs> we're yes. doing Earth and Sun and Moon and we're doing Truganini and we just wanted to do something backwards uh, and piano was what we did. And it has that spooky effect. So exactly the same thing. He wrote out the chords and played the chords in different ways backwards and he also did these single note things and i have to say recording Mm -hmm. piano backwards has always been a thing of mine that i've loved if you listen to the very first record i ever ever made which was flowers of romance album by public image if you listen to a song called four enclosed walls which is the first song on the album that song has very little on it. It's got drums. It's got a Mickey Mouse watch with effects on it going. It has a vocal by Johnny Rotten and it has backwards piano really loud in the mix. In fact, the song starts with it. The thing that you hear that goes. It's exactly the same as Truganini. love backwards recording there's quite a lot of backwards things on this album actually maybe now would be a good time to talk about bushfire since we said that we were going to do that now lyrically it's 
such an emotional, such an evocative song, but sonically, it is such a slow burn. Speaking of bushfire, you know, this is just something that's got something going on and it just simmers and boils below the surface. It's a, it's a wonderful song. Please tell us some wonderful stories about bushfire, Nick. It, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great groove. I think, again, yeah. it, it, a big part of this album was to, to come up with some very evocative, warm, uh, groovy songs, you know, to chill to actually in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, sure. and so not, not all songs lent, lent themselves. This song did. It's, it's a little bit, I mean, it starts with the acoustic. So at first you think, oh, it's, it's going to be like a folky song. It's got that kind of, uh, outdoors on the beach late at night, perhaps, perhaps around a campfire yeah. thing. Campfire, yeah. And then in comes the groove and it's, it's, it's a very evocative groove. And, to me, it's a little bit yeah. like uh, "Sympathy for the Devil" by the Rolling Stones kind of thing. I think mm, that's what sure. I was thinking. Um, and unusually for for Midnight Oil, it's got a lot of percussion. I mean, there's a lot. There's congas. There's yeah. There's wood yeah. blocks. There's all kinds of. And there's a, the shaker. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that the maraca shaker is very very loud mm-hmm. in the mix, which is very deliberate. Uh, a lot of 60s records yeah you know again rolling stones comes to mind but a lot of a lot of those records have their percussion instruments extraordinarily loud and the reason for that wasn't that they wanted them that loud it's that back in the day the recording technology was you know four track at most and mm-hmm. so you'd record the whole band on one track because it was mono, one track, and then you'd do maybe some vocal harmonies on track two. And the way you do it is you'd bounce track one and track two onto track four. And then you had four, which had the mm-hmm. backing track and the vocals. And then you'd record to back to track one again, go over track one with your new instrument, which was invariably the last thing to go on, which was a shaker or a tambourine. And every time you bounced, yeah. because of the technology not being that great, all your older tracks got duller. I mean, it, it's 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 terrible, mm. really, because the the original backing track, which was the band, which is most of it, would end up being a degraded quality version of what it was because you had to bounce. So the mm. newest instrument, the last instrument to go on, would end up brighter and crisper and clearer. So if you listen to a lot of old records from the 60s, you'll find that the guitar solo and the tambourine are extraordinarily ra- loud and clear. But it's not a bad thing. It's it's almost like that that is yeah. from from a recording engineer's perspective, you you're constantly going like, "Wow, guitar solos are so loud, harmonies are so loud, and percussion <laughs> is so loud." Well, that's why. As anybody who's ever made a record will know, and you do a rough mix, your latest overdub is always the loudest because that's what you're concentrating on. The only difference back then is your loudest, <laughs> loudest recording was how the record ended up. So in a way, with this record, when we came to mixing, it's like shakers and tambourines and those kind of things, and guitar yeah. solos actually are, are the loudest thing on the record. Um, so go- going back to Bushfire, it's probably the song with the most percussion 
that Midnight Oil have. I mean, uh, uh, maybe some fan mm. out there can point out another song and they'd probably be right. But to my memory right now, uh, <laughs> it's it's got a lot. It's got a it's got three or four or five yeah. elements of percussion and uh, I'm you know I'm personally a big fan of um, Grace Jones and a lot of her songs they really groove. I mean you've got Sly and Robbie, best drummer and bass player from a groove perspective that's ever existed. You know, mm. second would be. Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth from from Talking Heads, in in my humble opinion, but um, I think we're we're all big fans of of the Grace Jones records that have a lot of percussion, and the percussion is kind of loose. It's in the groove, but it's loose, and I think we're trying to go for that kind of thing. And we had there are there are other songs on on this record that have those kind of weird. Um, what are they called? Thunderclap kind of things. What are those things called? I know what you're talking about. And those kind of little cowbells, you know. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah. All the fun things you got to play with in kindergarten. Yeah. The, the song Bushfire, is, it's, not that, it's not that complex. I think the basic backing track would have had um, a lot of the elements and the percussion was definitely overdubbed. Harmonies were mm-hmm. overdubbed. But I love the way the song keeps going back to the intro, the basic thing. And, you know, obviously it's got that piano yeah. melody yeah. Uh, throughout. The piano sound, listening to it fresh, the piano sound sounds a little bit um, like it might not have been the real piano, actually. It sounds a little, dare mm. I say it, digital. But I think it's got it's got these Ooh. harmonics. I was listening to it going, that's weird. Why didn't we do a real piano? Um, maybe it was a real piano. My memory's not good, but it has these odd harmonics to it that I think are integral to the to the melody that maybe a real piano wouldn't have had. Um, I'll have to have a word with mm-hmm. Jim about that and find out why we use that sound. <laughs> I think you because, should. I mean, it's just to my ear. Everything is organic, and the you know the is it's got these this it's got this sound to it which yeah it's got yeah. extra bite to it do you do you think you would have distorted I, I it on so. purpose to get i i think it's possibly a sampler oh you know what it was i've just my memory ladies and gentlemen welcome <laughs> back to my memory it's it comes and goes. I know what it was. It was an Akai. I'm gonna say S1000. It was a rack mounted. They were cream in color, uh, and they were at the time the best sampler. You they had floppy disks like like not the not the big yeah. floppy disks that were they were like three inch square plastic three and a half inch yeah. And you could store lots of sounds on them. That's what that was. So it was digital. On such an organic sounding song. Yes. Digital. Yes. Sneaking in. <laughs> I guess I guess there was a little bit of us that wanted that modern technology. There's a few moments in the album, like uh, at the end of Drums of Heaven, where there's uh, pitch right. bends. Again, do you... On Drums of Heaven, I think the most unusual instrument that you'll hear is a sitar. It's an Indian 
instrument. And uh, from my memory, there were two different sitars used. There was a, a, re- a sitar as in the real thing, which is huge and very difficult mm-hmm. to play. But of course, Jim mastered it. And there's also yeah. a sitar guitar, which is a guitar that looks like a 60s thing. It's, and I think it was developed in the 60s. Sure. When, when, when that kind of trippy music was, it was all about that. And what it is, is it has six strings. I think there are 12 string ones as well. And then it has a piece of actually perspex that's very close to the six guitar strings that vibrates these other strings. So it has about, I don't know, maybe 12 other little strings on the actual main body Mm -hmm. of the guitar. And that there's a pickup on those strings as well. So you've got two pickups. You've got the guitar one and the these extra strings. And they vibrate and they buzz, deliberately buzz. So they make a normal guitar sound like a sitar. Anyway, you can create these sitar or Indian sounding songs much easier because yeah. you can play it. If you know how to play guitar, you can play this thing. Whereas the real sitar is just an extraordinary, bizarre instrument. It's made out of a big gourd. It's like playing a big veg, a vegetable. <laughs> if you can imagine a big vegetable, uh, like like a, a big zucchini uh, crossed with a pumpkin uh, with strings on it. So that's what it is. And um, that's what you're hearing there. And at the end, all those high noises are a combination of a guitar... Yeah with an effect on it. And uh, actually, there's a lot going on. There's also some piano notes. So the the combination was just to make it feel trippy. You know, I could have mm-hmm. said, for instance, oh, yeah, this album, we all took acid and uh, made the album <laughs> and we none of us wear, wore shoes and we sat around on lots of beautiful cushions and we didn't cut our hair and grew very large beards during the making of the album, which would all unfortunately be a lie. But that's the vibe. I think George Harrison was uh, a big uh, influence on this record. So, yeah, there was a lot of experimenting in that area of using Eastern instruments. We just had a lot of instruments because, you know, as I said, it was made in Sydney. Uh, You know, there was everything there. I mean, there was at least four or five drum kits guitars galore keyboards it was great to have it all there and and just be able to have the time to experiment um one story that we heard from jim was that in tell me the truth there's this pretty nasty sounding guitar a guitar riff and apparently the battery was almost dead in the guitar pedal and then you actually took the battery measured the voltage and then we're deliberately trained. This sounds, do you remember this? Yes, I do. It sounds very gym-like. <laughs> no, it's 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 very yes. true. A lot of uh, d- guitar distortion pedals, they distort and they're set to a certain way on a 9-volt battery. And people often find, I don't know why, but it just sounds better when I have a battery in there than using an external AC adapter. And the reason for that is the AC adapter is is supplying 
9 volts or maybe even higher. So it's the full amount. Batteries, as you know, die and die pretty quickly. So they may be feeding it 8 volts. And as the battery dies down, it gets worse and worse. And the way that distortion pedals work is it's actually the lack of electricity going through the veins of the of the corrupter. <laughs> if you look at a distortion pedal a bit like sending your guitar to hell and back, <laughs> the less voltage in your battery, the more hellish your guitar will sound. So with this particular sound, I know the one you're talking about, it just sounded better when the battery was probably around the four volt uh, thing. So, so we had to either find lots of batteries that were that low or use an external adapter with a very control on it to, to bring it down, which, which is, I think, what we might have done. Uh, the same goes for guitar amps, by the way. Um, and I remember we had lots of beautiful guitar uh, amps for this album, you know, vintage Vox and, you know, obviously Fenders and all kinds of different amps. And one of the things that you can make a guitar amp distort more or sound crunchier is by lowering the voltage to it. So in other words, you take your, uh, in, in Australia, they, they write it's uh, 220 or 240 volts, but you can get an, uh, a voltage attenuator and you can reduce the amount of voltage going to these amps. And it's like a big knob. And you can literally play away and someone else just turns the voltage down until the, the amp is literally suffering. It's not actually suffering. There's no actual cruelty <laughs> to these amps. I just want to, <laughs> to stress that no amps died. Actually, that's not true. I think a couple of amps did die, but that was from something else. Um, but you can, you know, you can basically bring the voltage down. And this is a common thing. I mean, ACDC have... Uh, it's known that, oh, there's maybe it's rumors, I don't know. But they have these amps um, that they, you know, bring the voltage down on to make them distort just a little bit. It's, it's different to using a distortion pedal. It's, it's almost like a more expensive uh, way of distorting an amp because you're not using external electronics, which is what a lot of distortion pedals have in them to make that sound. You're actually just making the amp grittier and you know i guess the discovery of this we're getting into the history of guitar amps here people was that sometimes you'd do a gig right in a certain place and you go wow everything sounded so much better at that gig the amps sounded amazing well it's probably because the voltage especially in america where it's 110 and some places it's not as regulated like England's very kind of it's 240 everywhere you know and but it, it, all over America I mean I know this from my house here in, in Los Angeles you know the light bulbs invariably go duller you know because there's less voltage and I, I'm sure it's not 110 I'm sure it's mostly around the 100 mark and, and it affects the amps but it can affect the amps in that they have this kind of rich distortion so we were doing that we had a few of these voltage attenuators around and we were playing with stuff like that one more of these specifically nerdy questions on now or neverland uh the bass is super fat yeah how, how that was achieved how you got that tone
what a beautiful album it is. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the the bass, what it is, is it's actually quite a direct sound. It's probably a the DI on the bass, so it sounds quite clean in the top end, but it's also got an octavider on it. So an octave, what an octavider is, oh. is a pedal that gives it a whole octave down. God, I'm trying to think what we would would have used. It might have been a a Mooga Fuga or something like that. Uh, maybe <laughs> Taurus. I, I'm trying to think what brand it would have been. I, I actually can't remember what brand, but but that's what you're hearing on that song. That's why it sounds so thick. It's actually two octaves, and the and the lower octave is very 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 low. You certainly couldn't play a bass that low. It's something actually we use quite often. Uh, on this song, it's it's lower than usual, and it's also louder. The lower octave is very loud. Yeah, it was just so prominent that I thought, wow, that is a fat sound. Fat, <laughs> spelt with a PH. Yes. <laughs> we were talking about you know how this is such an incredibly groovy record. Every song seems to induce head bobbing. I remember when Rob and I were talking about the album a couple of years ago, I was using words like mesmerizing and spacey and yep, entrancing. Yep. It's, got, it's, it's, it's hypnotic. Yeah. It does feel, to me, listening to it, and, and I know at the time, very 60s in that groove way, you know, mm-hmm. very like The Doors. Yeah. Mm. It was definitely that. Yeah. I mean, definitely Fe- Feeding Frenzy is Riders of the Storm. I mean, it's that. Yeah kind of vibe and I think the the vocal effects yeah. on on feeding frenzy are me trying to get that sort of um Jim Morrison effect cuz in in rise of the storm there's a close vocal and a distant whisper vocal that's in reverb which actually was done I learned was done separately at Sunset Sound Studios here in LA which I work at a lot there's an actual echo chamber room and Jim Morrison actually went into that and whispered it, which which is very interesting to me. I didn't know that at the time. What I've always done is got the singer mm. to just do a whisper track, and then I send that to Reva, which essentially has the same effect. But it was very interesting to me that, that, that mm-hmm. Jim Morrison did that in the actual echo chamber, which I can tell you is a dank yeah. and... Not a very nice room to be in. It's 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 <laughs> there's no lights in there. It's dark, dark and murky, which yeah. is maybe why the vocal has such a such a spooky element to it. The lyrics on Earth and Sun and Moon they seem to reach more for. Um, spiritual and existential themes more than other albums. And I know that the lyrical content informs the musical content. And then you get this musical content informed by that to produce the album. I suppose what I'm leading towards is you're known as this punk post-punk producer. How did the groovy spiritual stuff mix with Nick the post-punk <laughs> in this era leading where everyone's supposed to be going grunge right, at this right, time. Right. Yeah. You guys are just doing all these left turns. Well, How does that true. go down? I am known as the Lord of Dark Wave because a lot, <laughs> a lot of records I made in the, I guess, early 80s were new wave-ish, but darker. And that's the name that they've come up. So, um, but, you know, yeah. certainly 
this album's not what I would call a dark record. It doesn't. It's it's quite light and trippy. I think it's quite trippy. There's so much hope in it too. And I think grunge. You're right. Grunge was just starting. It, it was at the beginning of grunge. Mm-hmm. To those who were, let's say, on the cutting edge of knowing what was going on musically in the world, certainly those in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have mm-hmm. already been listening to Nirvana and Chili Peppers, etc. All, all those bands and, you know, Jane's Addiction. And I was certainly listening to music, but I think I was, we just moved to Australia. It was all about my kids for me. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, bear in mind that the Oils kids are the same age as my kids. We all had kids at the same time. I mean, within a space of four years. And I probably wasn't listening to music as much as I used to, you know, as you, as you do when you become a parent and, you know, you've got a lot of things to do. Um, I was a late comer to listening and getting into grunge music. So my brain at the time of doing Earth and Sun and Moon wasn't in that frame of mind and I dare say neither were the oils so I think we were all slightly in our own blissful reminiscing about 60s and 70s records and yeah you know being kind of chill and parently and caring and full of love (laughs) I do interestingly remember That Midnight Oil, halfway through doing this record, were asked to headline, uh, probably not the headline, but headline as in very high up spot, Lollapalooza. Really? Yeah. Uh, along with Jane's Addiction. Yeah. Because obviously Perry Farrell was part of Lollapalooza. Chili Peppers, probably Nirvana. Yeah. And... Midnight Oil didn't want to do it. Uh, And it was a big talking point. I think the timing wasn't right because we were still making the record. So there were other reasons. But I'm I'm just mentioning this to to give uh, an idea of where our heads were at. I don't think... Okay, I know that Jim and Martin had been... Nirvana basically had been in Sydney and had played a few gigs and had blown people's minds. I mean, it was definitely the talk of the town. I, I didn't go to that gig. Jim and Martin did. So they were aware of Nirvana and loved them. So it wasn't a case of this new wave of music coming in and it not being liked. Mm-hmm. I think it was a case of, you know, Midnight Oil were a very, very big band at the top of their game. And Nirvana and, you know, bands like that were a new thing that the, that the young kids were into. Mm-hmm. I think in hindsight, even a year later, they must have been scratching their heads thinking, how come we didn't do that Lollapalooza gig? That would have been an incredibly important thing to do. Mm-hmm. The band were, their mental space was very all about the earth and mm-hmm. organic stuff and, you know, uh, recycling because recycling sort of really kicked off in that era, you know, yeah. that, I mean, yeah. Australia was recycling, America was recycling, England wasn't. It definitely was all about that. This album was all about 
basically we went back to being hippies, you know, <laughs> thinking along the lines of John Lennon. Yes. But um, George Harrison, I think, would have been the, the, the <laughs> yes. where we were going with that, you know. Um, I can't remember if, I sort of remember that, that someone had a beard. Who had a beard? There's one for the fans. Who had a beard? Likely Jim. <laughs> yeah, likely Jim. I think it might have been way ahead of his time, of course. You know, thinking about how a producer approaches creating an album, maybe we can end with this now. Okay. Diesel and Dust perhaps was the Oil's most internationally successful record, and it seemed like uh, they were maybe trying to match that international success with Blue Sky Mining. And maybe the production of those albums was geared towards success, if you know what I mean. Right. Earth and Sun and Moon seems to be, you know, and we've been talking about this all all afternoon, a much more honest sounding personal record. How do you feel as the producer? Of course, you're biased, but how do you feel Earth and Sun and Moon fits into the overall Midnight Oil catalog? Well, I have to say, listening to it fresh today... Mm -hmm. I think it's an extraordinarily good album. Yeah. I think it's got beautiful songs. It grooves really well. And it doesn't sound dated, um, a bit probably because it, it, it's very earthy, mm -hmm. very earthy, sunny and moony. Um, and <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's I, I mean, I get why, you know, I completely understand why Diesel and Dust is the most commercial record. It has these incredibly engaging songs that are like pop songs. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. I'm not saying, Midnight Oil are not one for writing a deliberate pop song hit, but they are very aware of things. And I think there were certain things learnt, mm -hmm. as with any band, as the, the more you do, the more you learn. And I think Power and the Passion was a very big learning experience as far as um, making a record that appeals to a lot of people. It has yeah. a catchy chorus, a, a groove. Uh, it has very characteristic, ca ca characterful, engaging vocals by Peter, which was a big, big, big thing of like, you know, there was, we all recognize that Peter's, Peter's a character vocalist mm -hmm. and, you know, how do you make the most of that? And, you know, obviously, um, Joe Strummer being a similar kind of singer where yeah, he's not really yeah. singing, he's he's making noises, and they, but they're very appealing. And there are a lot of singers out there like that, you know, yeah. uh, and Peter's, Peter's like that. And it was like that really worked on Power and the Passion um, and Beds Are Burning. You know, you've got his mm -hmm. vocal on the verses of Beds Are Burning is... I, I can tell you, even though I didn't make that that song, they did a vocal which was, let's say, properly sung, well sung, you know, and the timing and all that. And yep. I heard that they listened back and it sounded a bit, let's say, flat and, right. and, and didn't have enough character. And then Peter went out there and did a very Australian sounding vocal. You know, more yeah. than any other song, if you listen to it, you know, his, his, you know, he's going out with, a, you know, it's a very memorable characteristic and it's kind of quite shocking if you've never heard Midnight yeah. Oil before. It, it is. It's like, it but is. then the chorus hits and it's all harmony and it's all that. So I think the popularity of Beds Are Burning was like, okay, 
that works and that's what people know midnight oil for in mm-hmm. in the in the bigger audience we're not talking yeah. about the the sort of cult followers yeah so um i i think come to do earth and sun and moon the the contender let's say of that kind of formula of song mm-hmm. is true ganini yeah right so that that's the song it's got the the groove it's got the riff the guitar riff and then the chorus hits and it's all harmonies yeah. the vocal on that is like that too it's got this character yeah. true true ganini's the the obvious potential hit single single yeah. on that uh on that album. And I, I have a little bit of a story about Truganini. Sure. Which I'd like to tell. So by this point in the history of Midnight Oil, they've obviously had four big albums uh, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the last two obviously huge in America. So mm-hmm. they have a, a lot of attention from their American record company being Sony, or CBS Sony you know, high priority band. So the delivery date of this this new record is got to be on time. And mm-hmm. so there's a bit of pressure for time. Although I, I remember spending quite a lot of time on this record uh, in a fun way, not in, not in a pressured way. But the A&R guy, a really fantastically talented man called David Kahn, who's a record producer in his own right. He produced, mm-hmm. I believe he produced the Bangles okay. and had big hits with them. Yeah. He also produced um, a lot of the more pop type of grunge bands. A great record producer and a very, very mm-hmm. talented guy. Uh, he writes music. I mean, literally, you know, went to music school and he's mm-hmm. written operas and he's done a very interesting guy. He was head of A&R for Sony, and he was Midnight Oil's main man. I hadn't met him at that uh, at that stage. I, I've actually met him years and years later when I moved to LA, and he became a good friend, is a good friend of mine. I haven't mm-hmm. seen him in a while. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I can't tell you, this guy is talented, knows what he's talking about. He's mm-hmm. not your typical A&R guy. A lot of A&R guys, unfortunately, are failed producers or failed musicians Mm. and they're very businessman like and they have ideas about how records are made but they really haven't got a clue and they usually i've had experiences where they just kind of get in the way to be honest and they're a bit of a nuisance especially in america luckily for me i've avoided them uh in the last certainly the last 20 years i've avoided them deliberately because i just uh, you know, I've worked with bands like the Yeah Yeah Yeahs and Arcade Fire and Nick Cave, yeah. who do not answer to their record company at all. In fact, they have it in their contracts that the record companies are not allowed to make any artistic input. So this is 1993, <laughs> at the the height of record company uh, domination of the world. It's it's CDs. It's before streaming. Everybody's making a lot of money, and Midnight Oil are high on the list of priorities for Sony and they get sent rough mixes of what we're doing in Australia. David Kahn gets gets the stuff and gets Truganini. Basically gets in touch with the band and says, oh my God, guys, this is our next Beds Are Burning. It's awesome. This has got to be the first single, blah, 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 blah. Enthusiasm, enthusiasm. 
pressure, pressure, pressure mm. to make sure that Truganini is everything that's that we want. Now, I'll say this. The rough mix, the early rough mix of Truganini is pretty much complete with all instruments, not absolutely everything and not the final vocal mm-hmm. and not all the harmonies, but it is a great rough mix. And that's what he heard. And that's why his enthusiasm. So, okay, we, we get to the stage where we've finished all the recording of all the songs and I start mixing. The first song I mix is Truganini. And I'm kind of like listening to the rough and going, well, it's almost there. Change this, change that, put in the new harmonies. Of course, the harmonies make it sound more like what people have come to expect from Midnight Oil with, yeah. with the big success of Beds Are Burning. Send it to David Kahn. And we get this response of, guys, you, you blew it. It's like, what happened? He said, this song, it's it's just not what it was. I'm, I'm really disappointed. It's not, uh, there's something really wrong. What did you change? You know, and we're like, what? So I'm listening to it and I'm going, he says, listen to the rough mix. Just go listen to the rough mix. Whatever the rough mix has, that's what we need. We need that. Hmm. Okay. So I go back, listen to the rough mix. I listen to the final mix and I go, okay, well, there's a few things there. And there's, you know, the backwards piano was pretty prominent in the rough mix. Okay. Things like that. And I get the vocals effects sounding good. Of course, I add the harmonies, finish the mix, send it back to him. And he goes, no, he said, no, it's just, it's just, he said, he said, listen, I I played that rough mix to our sales people. Now, this was a different era, right? This this was back in the days when record companies, especially big ones like that, the reason indie indie labels, small indie labels, had no chance of having big hits compared to the big ones is because they had a workforce of hundreds of guys who were like what I'm going to call dodgy car salesmen who would literally go to the stores and put those records up front so you could see them and they'd have posters and they'd you know i think we've all seen um spinal tap do you yes, remember the yes. character Artie fufkin do you remember Artie right. fufkin oh, yes. so we're, t- we're we're talking about do you know that Artie fufkin is from thunder bay where he's, we are he's born paul here paul schaefer is please say hi to him from me <laughs> paul schaefer love him Artie yeah. Fuckin, Polymer Records, how Hello, are you? Artie. I'm your promo man here in Chicago. Oh, that's great. I love you guys. And, and you know, that depiction of an A&R guy is so accurate. <laughs> it's just funny. You know, those kind of, of guys are, are huge music fans. So we can't take anything away from them. We love them because they're mm-hmm. music fans. But they don't know how records are made. And they, they, they have a, a glorified glamorous idea of what rock stars are and all that but they are actually the rock stars they're the ones driving the the flash cars and being loud you know um so if you can imagine i think it was rob and peter went over to new york to have a meeting to make sure that the priority was kept it was very important to be in the good books of these labels because they put all the energy and money behind you Mm -hmm. if they liked you and they went and made an appearance at one of these marketing sales force conventions. And I'm talking like, it's, imagine a hotel convention, hundreds of people 
all salesmen, sales reps, and the stage and a talk. And there's the A&R guy. There's the head of the sales force. And they had the guests that came up, which were some of Midnight Oil. Definitely Peter. I'm going to say Rob. And came back saying, yeah, yeah, you know, it's amazing. They played Truganini, the rough mix. And they all stood up and applauded and like, oh, my God, this is yeah. the next big hit. It's <laughs> Beds Are Burning Part 2, you know, Midnight Oil, Midnight Oil, Midnight Oil kind of thing. So back to the mixing process where this insane pressure is on me to create the vibe of the rough mix. And I'm literally a being, you know, going between the two mixes just to make sure they're the same because Dave Kahn is telling me. The, the rough mix is what it's at. And I'm like, there's no difference. The only difference yeah. is the harmonies. So I was just getting these instructions, like rough mix with the harmonies. So I'm like, mm -hmm. excuse my language, but I'm like, fuck it. Uh, at this point, I've done four mixes and they're, they've come so like the rough mix. I'm going to actually send them the actual rough mix mm -hmm. with the choruses edited in with the harmonies, because that was the big difference. So I send Dave Khan the rough mix with the harmonies added. And I'm like, this is undeniably like the rough mix because it actually is the rough mix. And he comes back and says, I don't know, man. Maybe we'll just go with the rough mix. It's just still not there. It's still not there. So this at this point, I get on the phone with him. I'm furious at this point because I'm, yeah. I should have been into mixing the whole record by now. But I'm just Truganini, 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 spending like two weeks mixing this and i go like david look what i sent you is the rough mix it is the rough mix that i can tell you the first chorus is actually the rough mix i just overlapped the harmonies mm -hmm. the second one because it has more instruments at that point it edits to it's the same mix so i don't know what's going on i don't know if you're playing it off of a are you playing it off of a cassette and maybe the cassette is distorted and it's more distorted and that's what you're liking? He goes, God, I don't know. And by this point, we're talking and he's he's not angry. He's yeah. frustrated. I'm frustrated. He said, you know what? Let me just go and listen to see what's going on here. He says, because that's crazy because the, the last mix you sent me, which you're saying is the rough mix, doesn't sound like the rough mix that I've got. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the rough mix I've got is a different rough mix. And I said, well, that's impossible. There's only one. So he goes back. Now, bear in mind, the new, the new mixes I'm sending, I'm sending them on CD mm -hmm. that we've burnt. He goes back and finds that, sure enough, his rough mix is a cassette. Oh. His cassette machine was running fast. No way. Yeah, it was very sped. You know, cassette machines are really yeah. are, are, not, are not accurate. Yeah, it was running considerably faster. So wow. the way we'd record it was more like, what he was hearing was, yeah, like a punk song. He was saying, yeah, yeah the punk elements missing. You know, the blah blah blah. And he says, I don't know, it's. It's like it's it's higher up and it's higher pitch. And I thought about this later. I thought this is a mm. this guy's a musician. Surely he could have noticed that the pitch was different. Yeah. It, anyway, he was embarrassed by it. It was definitely like you know. I, I mean, he's head of A and R, so he's 
got a lot on his plate. He's listening sure. to lots of songs every day. And, you know, he probably just hadn't realized that the cassette machine, which was the same, by the way, the same cassette machine that they used to play in the conference. So that was it. So basically we ended up speeding it up. I can tell you this, the version on the album is sped up from the original. That, that, that's not unusual. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles did it on yeah. most songs. Oh, well, a lot of songs that they, they put out, a lot of people would speed up. The single version of Truganini that came out in America is yes. even faster. I'm going to have to oh. It's even faster. do a comparison listen. Yeah, because we didn't like it as fast as he wanted it. He wanted it as fast as his cassette machine. So basically, he analyzed his cassette machine and what tempo yeah. it was playing at and sent it to us. And we're like, oh, my God, no wonder he was like going, this is a different mix. It sounded like... Really yeah. different, you know. So we found a compromise for the speed that we liked and he liked, which was which is the album yep. version. But the single version is even faster. Oh, there you go. That's yep. insane. So oh. there you go. Wow. Very good. I know where t- time's up, but I do have one more story that's very important. Okay to this All album. Right, do it. So I'm going to have to yeah, tell let's it. Do it. One of my favorite and most vivid recollections of the making of this album was that Midnight Oil had done this tour of the outback of Australia. And and I was invited to go on that tour and I wish I had. I really wish I had. It's one of my biggest life regrets. So they basically, you know, Instead of doing the typical cities, they they did a a, a bus tour and played in the desert. So cut to the period of time of making this record, they did some kind of competition whereby funding was raised to bring Aboriginal kids to the big smoke, to the city, because a lot of people from out back had never, ever been to a city. So... From my memory, and this is probably simplifying things, uh, a bus. I think they actually might have been flown to Sydney, which would have been incredible to go on an aeroplane. Mm-hmm. So a carefully selected amount of Aboriginal people that had won this prize somehow were selected. And they included elders. And I'm talking, uh, I remember there was a man that seemed like he was probably 90 years old. Yeah. He was unbelievable, this guy. I mean, if you could, if you were making a film about an Aboriginal tribe, this guy was it. Yeah. He had a lot of facial hair. It was all white. Yeah. Incredible eyes and, you know, very, very weathered skin. He was like a druid. <laughs> Just an incredible guy. And there was one or two others that looked a little bit similar, a bit younger. Then there was mothers, fathers, little babies Mm -hmm. and uh, toddlers and a lot of teenagers. And they all arrived. And so we'd set up in the morning so that the band could play some songs for them live. And we were going to play them some of the new songs. And this was a big treat for them to come to a a real recording studio, meet Midnight Oil, and then they were going to go in their bus around Sydney and see the opera house and all that. So time comes, we put out lots of extra chairs, like let's say 20 chairs, 
in the control room so they could all yeah. sit down and listen to the songs. So they arrive. We say, they've arrived, they've arrived. So we go down and greet them. And it's just incredible, you know, just beautiful, beautiful people. The teenagers were dressed very normal, you know, jeans and T-shirts and Adidas, yeah. you know, and all that. Um, the elders were more tribal looking. So they all came into the studio, were shown the control room, and they all looked around. And we were setting up. Some some people stayed in the control room, although they were very awkward. They didn't like being in there. Um, I think the, all the electronic equipment and the flashy lights were a bit off-putting to them. So they went and hung out on the terrace. And the terrace was a big, big, it's like a top of a big industrial kind of warehouse. And the studio was on the top floor, which was an extra floor. Mm -hmm. So it didn't occupy the whole of the, 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 the roof. Half of the roof was this massive, massive terrace. And there was a basketball hoop yeah. up there. And so the teenagers were out there playing basketball and they're incredibly good at it. I mean, you know, they're tall and thin and they, they, they're playing this and some of the kids are running around and the elders are sitting in the shade. Yeah. Um, but then they stopped and looked up into the sky. This is midday on a very, very hot day, clear sky. And they all pointed up at the sky and they started discussing it. And I remember Peter was out there and we were curious, like, what are they pointing to? And they were like, they could tell what time of day it was because they could see a satellite. No way. And they were pointing up there and we were looking and we could not see it. We could not see it at all. But they're used to this kind of day, bright light yeah. and being outdoors. And they could tell, they knew where all the satellites were mm -hmm. and which satellite. And, and the kids had actually looked it up. And so what they were discussing was which satellite? Was it a Russian satellite, oh, wow. American satellite, whatever? Yeah. So that was, that was an extraordinary moment. The other moment that I remember was, so they all came in. I'm going to say 30 people. Okay. And they, most of them would not sit on the chairs that we'd had bought in because there weren't enough seating. Everybody was sitting on the floor. So you had little babies and mums and dads and elders all sitting on the floor. And their band played a couple of the new okay. songs. Truganini mm -hmm. and all that. And in our minds, we were playing them to see if they liked mm -hmm. them. And they didn't like them. <laughs> I mean, they were like, so what? Like the song would end and nothing would happen. And they were like, I mean, it, it, they didn't dislike mm -hmm. it, but they were kind of a bit nonplussed mm -hmm. about it. And so it became like, play that other song, play that other song, you know, play that song that we know. And of course, they were going to play yeah. Beds of Burning, but it was like, okay. So, you know, after, I think they were going to play like eight of the new songs or like, no, after four <laughs> songs, it was like, eh, nah. So they played Beds of Burning and they all got up, yeah, started right moving on. around, dancing. And they were like, this is our song. This is our song. You yeah. know, they really like, this is our anthem. This is our song. And it was just such a great, great, great feeling. That's fantastic. It was incredible. And, you know, they blessed the album, so to speak, and it's great. It's like a, it, it was it was a great moment. Fantastic. Nick, 
when we started talking to you a few weeks ago, we thought, oh, we get to spend an hour talking to Nick Launay about Midnight Oil. This is going to be fantastic. And here we are, three weeks <laughs> well, later. And you have been so kind to us to go album by album through the albums that you produce for them. Thank you very much. Are we going to talk to you again, Nick? Never. Oh, no. Yeah, yes, yes. I would love to do another one where we, I mean, so many people seem to have written in yeah. with questions and, and let's do yeah. that. We've got a bunch of questions. You've indicated that you've got lots of other stories that you'd like yeah, to tell. Yeah, it's endless. Can, can we plan for maybe in another month or so sitting down with you and, and, and sharing some more time just talking about Midnight Oil? I would love that. One of my favorite bands, favorite people. I would love to talk more about them and their music. Midnight Oil Forever. Excellent. Well, again, thank you very much, Nick. Our listeners, yeah, you know that we've got an email address, oilscouch at gmail.com. If you've got a question that you'd like to ask Nick, you can send it to us and we'll compile them all and, and we'll get together with Nick and we'll try to go through as many of them as we can go through. Fantastic. And I guess with that, it is time to slide earth and sun and moon back into the album sleeve and say good night until next time when i don't know exactly what we'll be doing on comfortable place on the couch a midnight oil podcast but we will be back corrections comments hate mail don't forget questions for your favorite midnight oil producer nick lane you can send us an email to our new podcast email address oilscouch at gmail.com visit darrenfolds.com slash podcasts for any show notes we might have tweet us on the tweeter at darrenfolds or whatever robin's twitter happens to be this week so for robin harbron and nick lane I'm Darren Folds. Good night. Good night. Happy editing. <laughs> Hello, podcast listener. It occurs to me that if you're listening all the way to the very end of the podcast, maybe you're the kind of person who wouldn't mind leaving us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or the podcasting app of your choice. Ratings and reviews boost the prominence of the podcast and help others to find it. You know what another good way of helping other people find the podcast is? Just sharing it with them. So if you wouldn't mind sharing this podcast, that would be fantastic too. Thanks a lot and take care.